What a great opportunity once again to be together to open the Word of God as we have the privilege to do. And so I'll ask you to take your Bibles and turn in them with me to our study of the Gospel of Luke as we have been over the last several months working our way through this wonderful Gospel. We find ourselves this morning back in chapter 8. And I want to begin our time this morning by just reading for us verses 26 through 39. That's the section that we're going to spend our time in. Verses 26 through 39. You can follow along as I read. Luke writes, and he says, Then they sailed to the country of the Gezerines, which is opposite Galilee. And when he came out onto the land, he was met by a man from the city who was possessed with demons and who had not put on any clothing for a long time and was not living in a house, but in the tombs. Seeing Jesus, he cried out and fell before him and said in a loud voice, What business do we have with each other, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For it had seized him many times, and he was bound with chains and shackles, kept under guard, and yet he would break his bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. Jesus asked him, what is your name? And he said, Legion, for many demons had entered him. They were imploring him not to command them to go away into the abyss. Now there was a herd of many swine feeding there on the mountain, and the demons implored him to permit them to enter the swine, and he gave them permission. The demons came out of the man and entered the swine, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and was drowned. When the herdsmen saw what had happened, they ran away and reported it in the city and out in the country. The people went out to see what had happened, and they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone out, sitting down at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. And they became frightened. Those who had seen it reported to them how the man was, who was demon-possessed had been made well. And all the people of the country of the Gerizines and the surrounding district asked him to leave them, for they were gripped with great fear. And he got into a boat, and returned. But the man from whom the demons had gone out was begging him that he might accompany him, but he sent him away saying, return to your house and describe what great things God has done for you. And so he went away proclaiming throughout the whole city what great things Jesus had done for him. Let's uh, Once again, bow in a word of prayer as we ask God to bless our time. Father, we thank you that we have the privilege and opportunity to study your word, to know you. We thank you that that what you say we know is true and right and and, uh, certainly tells us about who you are and the glorious reality of our Savior, Jesus Christ, the God-man. And so we're grateful that we can be here this day to learn of you, to know of you, to be exhorted in these things, and to be encouraged in our hearts with the truth from this amazing passage. So bless our time and honor your name in it, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. John chapter 17, the Apostle John in verse 3 says this, quoting the words of Jesus Christ as Jesus prays to his Father, Jesus says, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Profound words from the Apostle John, and really a succinct definition of what eternal life actually is. Oftentimes we define eternal life by means of the salvation that we have in Jesus Christ, and certainly true, it is that, and yet the reality of that encompasses all that Jesus said in just that one verse, that eternal life is that we know God. We know the only true God. We know God and who He is and how He responds to His creation, how He has carried out salvation for those who are dead in their sin. 
to experientially know the character and nature of God through faith in Jesus Christ, whom he sent to save sinners like us. That's, that's, what, Jesus, that's what John is talking about. And one of the truths that we know of God through Jesus Christ is that he is sufficient. That God is sufficient. That is not a word that you typically hear thrown around in our society today. We don't use that word much today, and maybe we ought to use it more. Maybe because there isn't much for us that is sufficient. In fact, we live in such a way that nothing seems to be rather sufficient. We always want more. We always gather more. But in its most simple definition, sufficient simply means enough. Enough. And when we say that God is sufficient, that is exactly what we mean about Him. That is exactly what we must know about Him. That He is enough. Not only in Himself as God, but that He is enough in being God for every situation and circumstance that we encounter in our life. He is enough. And so one of the truths about knowing God is to know just that fact, that He is sufficient. He is sufficient. And so Luke is giving us more evidence of the sufficiency of Jesus Christ over all things. That our Savior, this one in whom we have eternal life, the God-man, God Himself is sufficient over all things, and he's doing that here in the Gospel of Luke so that we, like his friend that he has been writing to since chapter 1, so that we would be certain about what we believe. So that we would be, be fully understanding the reality of the very prayer of Jesus Christ that's recorded for us in John 17, that we might know God as God is. Because knowing God as God is, is the essence of eternal life fully in the sense of through Jesus Christ we know God. And when we know God, we will live for God. God came to rescue those whom He has chosen to save. And so Luke, along with the other gospel writers, are showing us that Jesus has the supernatural power to reverse the consequences of the curse of sin. This is exactly what Jesus came to earth to accomplish. He came to give His life as a ransom for many. He came to redeem sinful man. We're going to look at that a little bit even tonight in our study of Ephesians. The whole reality of what we have in Christ this Reality of redemption. Jesus came to redeem. He came to rescue. He came to, to gather up all of those who would ever believe. To gather them up and rescue them from the effects and power of sin. And if He's going to be successful in accomplishing what He came to do, then He would have to possess the total and complete power, not just to accomplish that in a, in a theoretical way, but to accomplish that in a reality way, in a real way. And that meant He needed to have the power over Satan and the host of demons that are followers of Him. That is to simply say, beloved, that if Jesus Christ is the one who, in whom we have salvation, if He is the one to bring real and lasting rescue to the fallenness of our humanity, the fallenness of our own hearts in sin, then He will need to have greater power than any force that this world can throw its way, he would have to have greater power than even the spiritual forces of wickedness that are now at work in the sons of disobedience. All of the evil forces that incarcerate men and women in bondage, physically and mentally, those who are just simple pawns to their wickedness must be overcome. 
We know that mankind has no inherent power to do that. We know mankind cannot remove himself from the difficulties of his own heart, let alone the spiritual forces. And so we know that if someone comes along and tries to say, I have the power to do that, that it is fakery, that it is chicanery, it's the height of deceptive con artistry, if you will, for anyone to say that, that they have the power to command Satan or the power to command demons to do anything, that is just charlatanism at its best. The reality is, however, that Jesus does have that power. In fact, this is exactly why he came, according to 1 John chapter 3, verse 8. Here's what it says. The Son of God appeared for this purpose. You go, hmm, what purpose is that? That he might destroy the works of the devil. The Son of Man appeared that he might, for this very purpose, destroy the works of the devil. It seems pretty clear. The God of the universe became man in order to overcome anything that he allowed Satan to do. In fact, in the book of Revelation, we read that there is coming a day when Satan will be bound for a thousand years. After that time, God will allow him to be released for a short time. And then God will, by His power, once again forever confine Him in the lake of fire where He will be tortured forever and ever and with all of those who follow in His rebellion. It is the Lord of glory who will accomplish all of that because it is the Lord of glory who has the power to accomplish that. No man has that power, only Jesus Christ. It's interesting when you... Look at the scriptures themselves in Acts, particularly Acts chapter 19. There was an incident when the seven sons of the high priest, whose name was Sceva at the time. Sometimes we confuse that and think that the guy's name was Sceva, but it was the seven sons of this priest named Sceva who tried to cast out demons. And they tried to use the words of the Apostle Paul because they knew that Paul had been given the power to do that and Paul was casting out demons. And so they tried to use the words of Paul and they said, in the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches, right? they're, they're trying to say, listen, Paul does this and he speaks of this Jesus and so we're going to use that too. And the demons answer with these words. I know Jesus and I know Paul, but who are you? Who are you? And the man in whom was the demon leaped on these seven sons of the high priest and overpowered them all. And the text says they all ran out of the place beaten and naked. I love how Scripture just describes it. This one guy took those seven guys and gave them a lashing like they've never had and they ran out with just their underwear. There was nothing that they could do. They were powerless. Now that tells us, at the very least, it tells us this thing. That we, as common people, as humanity, we have no power to overcome the works of Satan. Jesus Himself, God in the flesh, delegated that for a time to twelve apostles. And even then, even with the power, they found it uneasy to cast out demonic forces. Matthew tells us in Matthew chapter 17, one demon-possessed man was brought to them. And in verse 16, it says, they could not cure him. They could not cure him. And Jesus comes along and they're, they're wondering, why couldn't we do that? How come we couldn't get out? And Jesus tells them with an explanation, you know, some of these things are more difficult. And yet Jesus, with a word, casts out the demon that they could not. And so here, in Luke chapter 8, we find another incident of this reality. Jesus is sufficient not just for the troubles of life, like we saw last Lord's Day, the storm on the water that these men who were seasoned sailors could not handle. Jesus was sufficient in that. They needed to trust Jesus. That's why Jesus said to them in verse 25, where's your faith? Believe me, 
I'm the one you need to trust. And so here in verse 26 and following, we see again that Jesus is sufficient also over spiritual forces, all spiritual issues. And Luke shows us here that Jesus is, this is how I've outlined this text for us. You can just kind of write these all down if you want. He shows us the incident itself, number one. We need to follow the the flow of thought as Luke lays it out for us. The incident itself in verses 26 through the first part of 28. And then the interaction that Jesus has with the demonic forces, verse 28 through 31. And then the inquiry of the demons. They asked Jesus something in verse 32. And then the invincible power of Christ, verse 32 through 33. And then at the end, the incredible response of the people. So these five five ways in which we're going to walk through this text, the incident itself, the interaction of Jesus, the inquiry, the invincible power of Jesus, and then the incredible response of the people just begin with the first one, the incident. Verse 26 says, Then they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. And when he had come out of the land, he was met by a man from the city who was possessed with demons and who had not put on any clothing for a long time and was not living in a house, but in the tombs. And seeing Jesus, he cried out and fell before him. He cried out and fell before him. You can stop right there. It's interesting that after demonstrating that he was sufficient over the forces of nature, calming the storm with a word, that it became so calm that the sea was like glass, Jesus and the disciples continue to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. So the fishing or the voyage that started hours before is now coming to a close on the other side. Remember, they had left Late in the day, it had been a long day for the travel. It was an exhausting day. Jesus had fallen asleep even with the storm raging. And now it was very early in the morning. Quite possibly it was now the sun beginning to rise and break through the darkness of night. And the text tells us that they came to the country of the Gerasenes. The country of the Gerasenes. If you were to read the parallel accounts of this encounter in Matthew's Gospel, you would see that the place Matthew records it as the country of the Gadarenes. Here it is, the Gerasenes, and there is Gadarenes. Both names are talking about the same area, the same people. There were two small towns that were located in this country, in this region. One was called Gerasa, and the other was called Gadara. So you had Gerasa and Gadara. Those were the two sounds. Gerasa was located on the northwest or the northeast coast, I should say, of the Sea of Galilee. And it was uh, uh, right to the east of the town was these steep cliffs that ran down to the water. Hence, our text talks about those. You can go there today and you can see that region. And it matches, therefore, then geographically this place that Jesus lands with his disciple. The other town, Gadara, was farther south. It was more east. So, Gerasa was only about six miles from Capernaum, which Jesus really was the base of his northern Galilean ministry. And so because of those two towns in that country, the general region on that side of the Sea of Galilee was called the country of the Gezerines or the country of the Gadarenes. And so according to all the gospel accounts that record this incident, because you find it in Mark also, we'll refer to that as we go through this, There was a man there who was severely demon-possessed. In fact, Luke records it that he was possessed with demons. Uh, The account in Matthew 8 says that there were two men 
possessed with demons. Mark and Luke tell us only about this one man possessed with demons. And so the immediate question could come to our minds as we are looking at this and reading through the Gospels, well, isn't that a contradiction then in Scripture? One Gospel writer says there were two men. Another Gospel writer say there was only one man. Isn't that a contradiction? Well, the reality is no. No, it's not. It is just that both Mark and Luke, through, of course, the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, just as Matthew they simply choose, I believe, to focus on the more severely demon-possessed man. I think this man had more than one demon, obviously, as we'll see going through the text. The other man potentially may not have had that many, and I think is simply to magnify the power of Christ. That The idea, really, if we're thinking through it, could be simply that one demon was easy enough, but multiple demons would have been Never say impossible. And so the text here says in verse 27, when he came out onto the land, that is Jesus, got out of the boat onto the land, and the grammar there would indicate that all the other guys stayed in the boat. Jesus got out of the boat onto the land, and he was met by a man from the city who was possessed with demons, and who had not put on any clothing for a long time and was not living in a house. He was living in the tombs. And you notice, seeing Jesus, he cried out and fell before him. So when Jesus gets out of the boat, the man immediately comes to Jesus and he bows down to Jesus. This is, in and of itself, an amazing account. It's just as amazing as Jesus calming the storm with a word. And so... I want to take a moment and just help us understand demons for a moment this morning. Because I think in our day and age, there's a whole lot of confusion about how they work. I remember when I was in seminary having to write a paper in in my theology class on angelology, because angelology is a study of angels, and since there's holy angels and fallen angels, i.e. demons, we had to Look at both of those. And so I had to write a small little paper on on this. And I called them the secret band of instigators, the SBI. I was trying to be clever. I don't think it helped my grade. but And it wasn't a very good paper. But I wrote it anyway. So this is an amazing thing. But it seems like every time I turn on the television anyway, there seems to be some kind of new show or new fascination with ghosts in the spirit world. And I think we need to understand that. Right? These demons, these demons did some very amazing things with this man. Luke really kind of gives us a flyover, a 30,000 foot jet kind of flyover in this in verse 27 and then down in verse 29, right? It says, for it had seized him many times and he was bound with chains and shackles and kept under guard. So at some point in the in his possession, in the in the time when these demons were were in his life, he the he, he was under some kind of arrest and they had him shackled with chains and even guards around him, and yet you notice he would break those things and the demons would drive him out into the desert. So even even the chains and the, the fetters of the the law system couldn't hold this man down. When, when we read Mark's account, we get some other details. If I go over to Mark chapter 5 for a moment. Mark chapter 5, beginning in verse 5. We get some other details in reference to this, this sad man who was demon-possessed. Notice what it says in verse 5. It would Well, verse 4 says, no one was strong enough to subdue him. And verse 5 says, constantly, night and day, he was screaming. So he, he couldn't hush his voice. The demons were constantly screaming out from this man. No one could subdue him. He's among the tombs. He's in the mountains. He's all over the place. He's gashing himself with stones. So he has this cutting reality going on in his life. And so then he sees Jesus and of course, he comes, runs, and bowed down 
before Him. Now, if we saw this kind of person in our society today, we would lock him up in some kind of insane asylum. We would say this person is totally out of their mind. Well, in that society, they tried to do something similar, but to no avail. They couldn't capture the man. They couldn't keep him in capture. He was always escaping. No one could bind him. In Matthew's gospel, like Luke's, it says that he was demon-possessed, meaning more than one. It's interesting because the word demon-possessed in the original language in Matthew's account is diomazomai. It just means to be possessed by a demon or by demons. Luke says he was possessed with demons. And so all of that means to be under the control of. That's what it means to be demon-possessed. You are under the control of the minions of the prince of the power of the air, Satan himself. And that can manifest itself, obviously, as we see here, in a whole lot of bizarre ways. That is just to say that not all demon-possessed humans act in the same way. Obviously, there's demon possession that we see in other places in the Scriptures, in the New Testament, and and it's not always the same way that the people are acting. Sometimes it's throwing a child into the fire as one man runs to Jesus and wants his son healed. So not all of it acts in the same way. And I, and I want us to just make note here and remind us that no true believer, no true Christian can be demon-possessed. No true Christian can be demon-possessed. That is an impossibility. Anybody who ever says that hasn't really read their Scriptures. It is impossible. Why? Because demons cannot dwell in the presence of Christ. They can be in His presence for a time. It's obvious Jesus is going to cast them out, but they can't dwell there. Light and dark cannot coexist. They must obey Him. They must obey Him. And so, not all possessed people can do what this man is doing, but what is the same in demonization is that all whom are in that condition are under the control of demons. While not all demon-possessed people can do the same kinds of things that this man is doing, all people who are demon-possessed are under the control of demons. And this is why a Christian cannot be demonized. Why? Because to be demonized is to be under the control of a demon. And a Christian is controlled by who? The Spirit of Christ. We have the Spirit of God living in us. The Spirit of God is not going to allow a demon to overtake you. It cannot. Back to demons for a minute. Demons attack in a lot of different ways, right? Demons attack spiritually. They attack spiritually through false religions, false kinds of worship. Spinning all kinds of false doctrines. They attack physically by causing those who are possessed to to live and to act in bizarre ways like this man here. They attack as they promote all kinds of false doctrines. They attack the church. In fact, the Apostle Paul cautioned Timothy of this very thing. He said in the last days before Christ's return, in 1 Timothy chapter 4, he said, The Spirit explicitly says that in later times some will fall away from the faith. Now, he's not talking about true Christians. He's talking about those who profess it and and they, they seem like they're Christians because they're professing it and acting in such a way that might might appear that way, but they are going to fall away and we know no one can be snatched out of the Father's hand. So obviously these aren't true believers the Spirit says that in latter times some will fall away from the faith, 1 Timothy 4.1, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. You say how? By means of the hypocrisy of liars, seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron. 
You say, what kind of doctrines? Well, men who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods. In other words, men who say that you can gain righteousness through means of your own efforts and doing those things in order to be righteous before God. That's a doctrine of demons. Well, I know a whole lot of religions that preach that. The entire Catholic system is a works righteousness system which tells you where it comes from, beloved. Any religion that says man can earn his way to righteousness is a doctrine of demons. We have to understand demon possession happens. It was very common in the New Testament times. Somewhat, I was putting this in my notes and then I thought, let me think about this statement because I I, want to say that sometimes it was more prevalent in the New Testament times than it seems today. And I think think that's true in this sense, in, in more sophisticated societies, societies in which modernity has taken its effect. I don't think demon possession is so prevalent in our society. You say, why? And I say this, because I believe in our own sophisticated humanness, we easily follow after the schemes of Satan's worldly temptations. We don't need demons to stir that up. We love worldliness. No demon possession is needed. We just willingly follow the lies. But here, here in Luke chapter 8, here is this humanly uncontrollable man that society had been none too grateful to banish to live in a cemetery. He's living not in a house, verse 27 says, he's living in the tombs. He's living in the local cemetery with the dead. This is a pretty incredible incident. It's been a rough night. Jesus in a moment makes it a real calm morning until he steps off the boat. It's hostile. It's violent. It's out of control. At least from a human standard. And yet here is a situation over which Christ is completely sufficient. He's completely sufficient. So here's the interaction of Christ with demonic forces. Notice what he says in verse 28 through 31. It said in a loud voice, What business do we have with each other, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. He's saying that because he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For it had seized him many times, it had bound him with chains, shackles, and been under guard, and yet he would break those bonds, be driven by the demon into the desert. And so Jesus asked him, what's your name? And he said, Legion. Why? Because many demons had entered him. They were imploring him, that is the demons, were imploring him not to command them to go away into the abyss. I cannot miss the impact of what is happening here. Don't miss it. Right out of the gate, Luke doesn't disguise it. It's just there in clear form for us that Jesus has power over these demons. These demons are powerless in the presence of Christ. First, by saying, what do we have to do with you? That's the demons really simply saying, listen, why are you bothering us? Why why are you bothering us? We're just doing what we always do. Why are you bothering us? In other words, it's acknowledging who Jesus is. The demons are acknowledging who Jesus is. Unlike in Acts chapter 19 with the sons of Sceva, they were acknowledging the reality of Jesus Christ And the sons of Sceva, we don't care who you are. Paul we know, why? Because Paul has the power granted to him by Jesus. We know who Jesus is. He's the Son of God. They're acknowledging who Jesus is. And bowing before Him 
as he's speaking. The guy runs to him, and it isn't simply the man bowing. He's just the instrument. This is the demons bowing before Jesus. What business do we have to do with you? We know, really, that it's more than one. Because Luke says before that, in verse 27, he's possessed by demons. And the man says his name is Legion because he's had many demons that had been in him. Interesting word. This man had no control over himself. He's simply a puppet in the hands of the demons. And yet when Christ comes in, all the demons can do is bow. When authority, when God enters, darkness runs. That's what happens. Why? Because they hate everything about God. Demons hate everything about God, and yet they are completely powerless to do anything with God except to bow in honor of Him as God. Demons are just that, fallen angels. They are in concert with Satan himself in his rebellion against God. They hate every part of the Godhead. And yet, in the same way as it says in Philippians chapter 2, when Jesus Christ comes, there's coming a day when all men will bow to the name of Jesus. Men in heaven, men in earth, men under the earth, it doesn't matter who you are, saved or unsaved, all men will bow to Jesus. These demons know what is required when God is present. They knew He was the Son of God. They knew that He had the authority and power to completely destroy them in a moment. And so verse 28 says, they beg Him. I beg you, do not torment me, it says. Verse 31, they're imploring Him not to command them to go into the abyss. That's their final place. They know it. They know what's coming. They know what Revelation says about being released, Satan being released for a thousand, bound for a thousand years, released for a time only to be thrown finally into the lake of fire. They know, they know what's coming. They know the power of Christ. In fact, James chapter 2 says the demons believe and shudder. Mankind in his own foolishness hears of God and walks around as if He is God, and yet the demons know of God and they shudder about it because they know what's coming. They know the power of Christ. They know there is coming a final day of destruction. They fully realize the consequences of rejecting God. They realize that. In fact, these demons up to this point had had a better understanding about Jesus than the disciples They knew better of the redemptive plan of God and His judgment for those who would not follow Him better than the disciples did. They fully understand their final destination. It's the abyss. They know that. And so they're asking the what question in verse 28. What what do we have to do with you? I mean, why are you here? They knew that the time for the eternal judgment wasn't here yet. Jesus hadn't died. And so the demons are trying to buy time. Why? Because Jesus was commanding them to come out. That's what verse 29 says. I mean, they had been doing things to this man. Jesus had been commanding the unclean spirit to come out of the man. And it was seizing him many times. Before that, he was... He was bound in chains and shackles under guard. He'd break those and be driven into the desert. It's almost like there's an implication here that this isn't the first time that Jesus has seen this guy. Certainly wouldn't have been the first time he heard about him. This was a pretty significant incident in the country of the Gezerines. So they're trying to buy time. They had complete control of this man. Even his words are controlled. He cannot say things on his own. They are saying it for him. And so when Jesus asks his name, they speak. And they say, my name is Legion. My name is Legion in verse 30. Now, up to this point, if you and I were standing with Jesus, 
if we had gotten out of the boat, and like I said, the grammar seems to indicate that it was only Jesus that got out of the boat, but if we had gotten out of the boat, if we were there, if we had been there, if we had heard the demon speak, there's one thing for sure that we would have wanted to do. We would have wanted to get back in the boat. We're out of here. This is a frightening moment. Here's a guy that has a reputation for incredible strength. He has a reputation for attacking all of those who pass through the area. And now, it isn't one demon. Now it seems as if there's a legion of demons. By the way, that's a military term in the original language. A legion was a common military term at the time. It described a force of approximately 6,000 men. This guy had a troubled life. I don't know if that's how many demons are there at the time. It certainly was more than one because the plural is used in verse 27. And we know it was quite a few because... They will go into 2,000 pigs, Mark chapter 5 tells us. That's how many swine were there. But the point is that this problem is insurmountable by all human estimation. There, no one could handle this problem. Just as the sailors on the sea couldn't handle the storm that they were in, even though they were seasoned sailors, no human could handle this problem I think that's why this entire passage points to Christ like every passage. The main focus isn't the man. The main focus here isn't the demons. It isn't even the pigs. The main focus is Jesus Christ. Why? Because He's the only one who has the power to change the circumstance. And so the demons make their inquiry. Number three, they make their inquiry. Now there was a herd of many swine, verse 32, feeding there on the mountain. And the demons implored him to permit them to enter the swine. That's their inquiry. It's desperation time for the demons. They've met their match. They know they have to do what they are told. They cannot stand in the presence of a holy God without being judged by God, without God commanding them to do what they must do. They must do it. They cannot delay. It has to happen. And it's desperation time for them. They know the circumstance is changing. Their day of fun and frolic is over. They've had time with this man over, we don't know how long of a time, but it had been for a long time, it says in verse 27. That day has come to an end. The King of glory has arrived. This man is going to have a new day. And we know they need to obey Him. We know they need to come out. They know it. We know it. Luke is writing and telling us it. And so they say, hey, let us go into the pigs. Let us go into the pigs. Seems strange, doesn't it? Seems rather strange. We're not told why they made that kind of request. Luke doesn't say, and they made this request because they were really hungry for that kind of food. They just love bacon. He's not saying any of that kind of stuff. In fact, we would think it's strange that there would be even pigs in the nation of Israel, that side of the Sea of Galilee, and yet here we are. All we can do is speculate. And of course, that can be dangerous. We certainly have questions we can ask, and, and maybe we, we ought to be asking them here. Maybe they're just desiring to turn others against Christ, and so they say, hey, let's go into the pigs. They know what they're going to do with the pigs, and so maybe they're just saying, if we go into the pigs and we do what we want with the pigs, everybody else is going to hate Jesus. I don't know, maybe that's why they made that request, but we do know it was Christ who wasn't going to allow them to stay in the man. And so we get another glimpse at the invincible power of Christ. Right? This is number four, the invincible power of Christ. Notice verse 32. And He gave them permission. 
And he gave them permission. Now, we don't want to miss this. We don't want to miss this. I mean, I mean, you can be reading through the Gospels and you get to the sense that you read through that and you just blow right past those five words like it's, oh yeah. I mean, think about what is happening here. This is an uncontrollable man who has been uncontrollable for years. Everybody knows about him in the region. They can't control him. He has beaten everybody who's tried to walk by. He has gotten out of every prison they've ever tried to put him in. He has been shackled numerous times and he's shred every single one of them. The guards can't keep him in check. Nobody can. He is relegated to the outer banks of the the area. He's living with the dead people. No one can do anything. And the demons are directly instructed by Jesus. Go ahead. He gives them permission. You realize they were asking him for permission? No one's controlling Jesus. Jesus is controlling everything. He gave them permission. It reminds us of another place where permission is granted by God to satanic forces, doesn't it? Think about it. Our world throws around the whole idea of the devil made me do it. All this nonsense and demon this and demon that and all these other kind of things. It's not my fault. It's something outside of me that's causing me to do it. It's not my fault. It's this syndrome of life that we have. There's another place in Scripture where Satan was able to do what he wants, but only at the permission of God. It's in the book of Job. Of course, every incident is that way. But Job tells us it clearly. Satan comes before God and God says to him, hey, where have you been hanging out? Kind of a strange interaction that's hard for us to even understand in our mind. And God grants permission to Satan to test Job. God grants permission. Why? Well, ultimately, because Satan couldn't do it without his permission. They might have had the idea, might have drummed up the idea in his mind and said, hey, listen, I just want to go destroy that guy's life because he's only doing this. In fact, Satan accuses God in Job's account because of what God is doing with Job's life. And he's saying he's only worshiping you because of what you do. God says, go ahead, do what you want. Satan couldn't do it without the permission of God. Why? Because God controls everything. And so Jesus Christ here grants permission because the demons needed permission. I love that. They couldn't act independently. They couldn't just go do whatever they wanted. They couldn't do it independently however they wanted to do it. They knew who He was. And so Jesus signs their permission slip. And He does it in the form of a command And they were powerless to disobey. They had to do it. In fact, Matthew's Gospel says it this this way, that Jesus just said, be gone. Be gone. One word. One word, just like the other Gospel accounts with the storm, Jesus just said, hush, be still. Says to the demons, be gone. Almost with disgust. Verse 33 says, And the demons came out of the man and entered the swine, and the herd rushed down the hill, down the steep bank into the lake, and was drowned. Remember, demons are fallen angelic spirit beings. That means they have superior strength. Superior strength. They have had thousands of years, in fact, to gain experience in the fallenness of God's creation. That just simply means they understand fallenness better than we understand fallenness. They understand the fallen nature better than we do. They understand weakness. They are limited to, they're not limited to time and space, they're spirit beings. And yet with a word, Jesus throws them out of this man 
and the country of the Gerizines. They go into the pigs. The pigs drowned. We never hear of these demons again. You wonder, you read this account and you wonder, I wonder if Christ has the power in my life. I wonder if Christ can care for me. I wonder if Christ really can do what I'm asking him to do. Does he have the power to to actually deal with the circumstances in my life? Does he have the power to overcome all the evil that is in this world? Can he really overturn the consequences of sin in the world? Can he really do that? Well, this text gives us the answer to those questions, does it not? Yes, he can do that, and he can do it with a word. He can do it with a word. Everything that was impossible for man to control, everything that was impossible for man to deal with in his own human strength, Christ comes along, and with a word, like Matthew's account says, he just says, be gone, and it's over. Done. Everything changes. Beloved, we can't miss that as the primary lesson. We can't miss that as the primary lesson for which Luke includes this to his beloved friend, Theophilus. Theophilus has, been, has heard about Jesus. Theophilus has been taught about Jesus. Theophilus has understood and seen and heard about what God has done in the Old Testament. And now Theophilus is seeing that this is Jesus Christ, God in the flesh. This is the primary lesson for us. It doesn't have anything to do with pigs. It has to do with people and the supreme power of Jesus Christ over Satan and his forces. They have no chance. They're a defeated foe. Jesus says, you have my permission. The demons going into the pigs is just proof that what could not be seen with the physical eye actually happened. Here's a man who's possessed by demons. People know he's possessed by demons. They've never seen a demon. They just see this man who's being controlled by the demons who no one can control. And Jesus comes along and says, be gone. And all the pigs run down in the water and are killed. Visible proof that what Jesus said to the man happened. The demons actually left him. Why? It was because he commanded them to do so. They had to listen. No one standing there that day would have wondered what happened. They knew what happened. And so you see their response beginning in verse 34. The herdsmen saw what had happened. Both sides of it, they saw the man and now they see the pigs, the pigs that were theirs. They ran away and reported it in the city and out in the country. They went to the town and they went to everybody out in the countryside and they were telling what had just happened. And the people went out to see what had happened and they came to Jesus. Wow, these men have come, run in, right? Wow, this is an incredible story. What do you mean all the pigs went down the hill and are drowned in the water? And they look over the hill and certainly there's the floating carcasses of all the pigs in the Sea of Galilee. And so they go down, let's go see what happened. And they come to Jesus and they find what? The man from whom the demons had gone out, sitting down at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. And they became frightened. Just like the guys in the boat. It's more fearful now than it was before. Because now we understand who this is better than we did before. Those who had seen it reported to them how the man who was demon-possessed had been made well. You notice that they're not really even talking about the pigs. The pigs are what proved what Jesus did happened, and yet the guys who saw it, which is the herdsmen, they saw this. They're not talking about their herd. They're talking about the guy. 
The, the miraculous change is the fact that this guy who had been tormenting the towns and the area for so long is now under control. That's what's so shocking to them. They go to Jesus, and Jesus has this guy sitting at his feet, clothed and in his right mind, and they are shocked to no end. They are frightened to their very core. Why? Because the man who was demon-possessed had been made well. All the people, all the people of the country of the Gerizines and the surrounding district did what? They asked Jesus to leave. We're more comfortable with the demon-possessed guy than we are with you. The demon-possessed guy, he was frightening, but you are absolutely frightening to us. If you could control that guy, then whoa, we have no idea what's going on here. They are gripped, notice, with mega fear. They have great fear. They wanted him to leave. So amazed by what had been told them and overwhelmed by the reality of what they see with that man now. They are so overwhelmed by that that Jesus becomes their new focus of attention. He was greater concern than the demon-possessed man or their economic loss. You think even the town might have mentioned to Jesus, hey, listen, you know, you really kind of owe these guys a lot of money. I mean, they lost their whole hurt. You think they would have had some concern for those guys, but they don't say anything about them. There's nothing about them at all. No concern for them. No concern for others in the town. All they're concerned with is Jesus. You've got to leave. They have no interest in Him. No desire to, to say, hey, we'd like to follow you too. None of that. They just want Him to leave. Why? Because there's a great fear. They're frightened to the core. This is what happens when wickedness is in the face of God. It shudders. That's why James 2 says that. The demons know and shudder. They weren't angry. They weren't even sad. They were just more scared than they were before. They were more scared now than they'd ever had been. They had gotten used to keeping their distance from the uncontrollable guy. They had found a way in order to keep themselves from him, keep him out from a distance. We don't really have to deal with him. Yeah, we know he's out there, but we have our little cocoon around that area. We just go at a distance. He leaves us alone. But Jesus is entirely different. Jesus isn't one who stays away. Jesus is one who comes near, and his power is entirely different, and they are now really frightened. They ought to be. Why? Because anytime unholiness comes face to face with God, anytime it truly understands who he is, it shudders. Think about it in your own life. Every sinner who sees their sin for what it really is, every sinner who knows that they must stand before a holy God and answer for their sin, shudders in fear. And it is the, Romans 2.4 says, the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. The kindness of God. Not that God overlooks that sin, but the reality that because of your sin, judgment was necessary, and God in His kindness sent His Son to take the penalty of that sin so that you might have new life and therefore turn from your sin and embrace Jesus Christ. You see, that's the reality of it. If there is no fear, then there is no clear view of the reality of sin. Prophet Isaiah said it this way, woe is me, when he saw God. Woe is me. Paul was on the road to Damascus. He saw the blinding glory of Christ. Last Lord's Day, we saw the men on the boat. They, they were more frightened after the storm than they were 
in the storm. Why? Because they got a glimpse of the holy power of Christ. So two here, just in this case. All these people want to do is to escape the holy scrutiny of God. They saw the man who no one could control. He was an uncontrollable person and they wanted to escape. They wanted to escape that kind of power, and so they asked that power to leave. Go away. We don't want you here. But I want us to notice the the grace of God. There's abounding grace here that is just overwhelming. Because God, even though they ask Him to leave, God's still gracious to them. Even though they say, leave our area, We want you to leave because they're shattered with fear. Jesus gets into the boat and He returns. But God's grace is is in this moment. Notice His grace is abounding to them because even though they ask Him to leave and even though Jesus gets in the boat and they return across the sea, notice what verse 37 and following says. He left them a witness. The man from whom the demons had gone out was begging him that he might accompany him. Can I come with you, Jesus? Can I be with you? And he sent him away saying, no, you return to your house and you describe what great things God has done for you. Jesus says to the guy, no, you can't come with me physically. You go and and tell your family. You go and give your testimony to the town, to the people. You go and tell them all that God has done for you. Isn't it interesting that Jesus says, go tell them all that God has done for you, and it's Jesus who did it. Who is Jesus? God. God did this. Why? Because God is Jesus. The demons listen to Jesus. Why? Because Jesus is God. The man is so overwhelmed by the compassion of Jesus in his life, he doesn't want to be away from Jesus in any kind of way. God's grace is abounding not only to this man, but God's grace is abounding to others. And He has plans for others. And while the man doesn't want to to stay in the place, Jesus doesn't want him to leave the place. Why? Because they need a witness. They need to hear about Jesus. Truth of Him needs to be brought to those who would listen. And verse 39 says, So He went away, and doing what Jesus had asked Him, proclaiming throughout the whole city what great things Jesus had done for Him. I just love how Luke intertwines the whole reality of God being Jesus through this whole thing, even though He doesn't use the word God all the time. Jesus says to the man, no, you need to go and tell him what God has done. Jesus is the one who does it. And Luke says at the end that he was telling him the great things Jesus had done. (laughs) He was pointing to the deity of Christ through the reality of his changed life. He was to go and to evangelize his own people. He was to go and be that visual, living testimony of the love of Christ in his life in order that they too might be saved. This is what Christ still does, doesn't he? It's exactly how Christ works. He continually extends his saving grace to those who are rejecting him, to those who are saying, leave me, leave me. God sends his grace the message of the gospel through the lives of those who have been freed from the control of sin. You and I, we go out and we just live the Christian life and we tell people about Jesus and what He did for us. All who see the power of Christ in us know that He alone is the one who's rescued us. Because we proclaim we couldn't have done it ourselves. So God is saying through us, just like through this man to the people who are around us, God is saying, come. 
Come, stop rejecting. Stop rejecting. Believe that I am sufficient for every need. Believe that I am sufficient for the forgiveness of your sins. I'm the one who has the power to reverse the curse. And so this is what the man did. He went away and he proclaimed through the whole city what great things Jesus had done for him. Christ is saying through this man, come, come. Christ is saying through us, come, come. Why? Because he's sufficient. He's sufficient for all our sin. Doesn't matter. Sufficient over all of nature. Sufficient over all the spiritual world. Sufficient over all physical disease as well. We'll see that next time. Let's pray. Father, what an incredible time we've had just looking at this moment, really a, a quick moment in the history of your life here on this earth as it was a morning incident. And yet so powerful, so rich, so full of life-transforming truth. Lord, you are sufficient. You are enough. You are enough. There's no need for anything else. Nothing else could help. It's only you and you alone. We know that you have not granted us any kind of supernatural power to go and command demons. In fact, your word simply tells us to resist him, to, to know the word of God, to follow the word of God. And so we just want to live out our testimony of Jesus Christ faithfully to you each and every day and let others see Christ in us as we speak about all that you have accomplished in our life. Lord, and may you grant them saving grace as you have granted it to us. May we, they be freed from the domain of darkness as you transfer them into the kingdom of your dear Son, the kingdom of light. Lord, we pray this end for lost friends, family, relatives, children, even those in our midst here this day who do not know you. We pray that this would be the day. As they fear you for judgment, may they come to know you for life through the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.